0: To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to be refreshed by your word, to come to understand what your word teaches, to be reminded of your grace and your love, but also to be reminded of your righteous standard and your justice, to come to understand that what is for many a harsh truth in scripture, but one that we must understand because it is taught throughout the scripture from beginning to end, and one that brings into even greater relief and greater focus your magnificent love and your uh, grace toward us. And we pray that you would help us to understand the significance and the reason for what we are studying today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and we will wrap up the Olivet Discourse this morning, coming to the last three or four verses in the Olivet Discourse, verses 41 through 46. The last part of the Olivet Discourse is where Jesus Christ is teaching about the one of the last judgments that occur at the end of the tribulation period. As I pointed out when we got into this section, which is uh, focusing on the judgment of the sheep, separation of the sheep and the goats, I pointed out that there are tremendous distinctions between this judgment and the great white throne judgment that occurs at the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ known as the millennium. Or the messianic kingdom that this is a judgment that occurs at about the same time as the judgment spoken of in the three parables that precede this section those are indeed parables this is not a parable but is describing a a judgment that will occur when the son of man comes in verse 31 that he comes at the end of the tribulation in all of his glory. He is accompanied by the angels. He is accompanied by all church age believers, for we are raptured and resurrected at the end of the church age before the seven-year tribulation. And when he comes to the earth, he will defeat the enemies of God, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and he will uh, rescue uh, the survivors of the Jews of Israel in Israel, and then he will begin to cleanse the earth, which means judgment, in order to remove those human beings who have never trusted in him for salvation. All of this to uh, establish his kingdom upon the earth, that 1,000-year rule that will be sort of the antechamber to eternity. And so there are these judgments, the judgments on the surviving Jews and the judgments on the surviving Gentiles. The surviving Gentiles are gathered before him, and he will separate them into two groups, identified as the sheep who will be separated on his right and the goats on his left, In Israel, as I pointed out, if you look at the flocks of sheep and goats, you will see that the sheep there don't look like the sheep that you may be familiar with in Scotland or in America. They look very similar to goats, and so it is the shepherd who can distinguish the sheep from the goats. The sheep are believers, those who have trusted in Jesus as the Messianic King, the Jewish Messiah, who died on the cross for the sins of the world, who came at his first coming offering the kingdom, which was the Jewish kingdom, where the Son of Man, as he's introduced in verse 31, the Son of Man comes. This is a title, first first revealed in Daniel chapter 7, speaking of the king who will come, who will be given the kingdom by the Father, and that this title, Son of Man, specifically focused on his Jewishness, his messianic nature, and so to accept the gospel, and the gospel At the time that Jesus came, the first time at the beginning of that ministry was identified as the gospel of the kingdom, because it was specifically related to not just believing that sins would be paid for, but that the kingdom was about to come that gospel of the kingdom becomes uh, comes back into force during the tribulation because that is seven years immediately preceding the coming of the king. And so that it's an integral part of the gospel. The Jesus that anyone believes in in the tribulation period is not just some sort of nice little... A savior, as depicted so often by different branches of Christianity, but it is a Jewish savior who is a conquering king who will come to establish his kingdom. So that you, you're not, someone accepting the gospel of the kingdom is not going to uh, be ignorant of the fact that it's Jewish and that they are supporting a Jewish king and Jewish kingdom so that when we read about the ultimate um, determining factor down in verse uh, 45 saying to the uh, sheep, assuredly I say to you, in as much as you are to the goats here rather, as surely as I say you did not do it to one of the least of these and when it, that is stated um, when that is stated earlier uh back in verse a few verses earlier, it is, he's talking about the least of these, my brethren. The term my brethren indicates Jewish disciples. It's talking about those who are, are believers. Least of these indicates the, the smallest. That's a term that's used to refer to disciples earlier in Matthew. My brethren, of course, refers to those who were, uh, of the same Jewish background. That would be in verse 40. So, here the emphasis is on something they did but the reason they did it is because they had accepted the gospel of the kingdom and in the last couple of weeks i've talked about the relationship of faith and works and that this is not what the idea that's here i mean the the uh, lordship view that the person is truly saved they will produce certain kinds of works that's not what is taught in this passage it is because they understand the gospel of the kingdom that they are supportive of Jewish Christians who are coming under intense persecution during the tribulation period. And so as as our Lord wraps this up, he moves from verse 40 where he says, Inasmuch as you did this, talking there to the sheep, as you did this to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is, I think, the central verse on the eternal condemnation of unbelievers. And so the question we need to address this morning is one that is uh, of current significance. It is the question, is the lake of fire forever and ever, or is it just for a very long time? That among many people, they have a difficulty understanding and accepting the fact that God could send people to an eternal punishment. And so we must understand this and understand it within the framework of what is stated here, that it is similar to are consequent to the punishment for the devil, his angels, and so it is applied to the wicked and the unsaved. So we've looked at this, our key verse, but it is restated in verse 46. These, that is, these goats, the unbelievers who survived the tribulation, will go away into everlasting punishment But the righteous into eternal life. Now, as we will see, the way that is translated, you have two different English words everlasting and eternal yet they both translate the same Greek word. That is just an aberration in English. We think that we can't repeat the same word uh, again and again within the same paragraph. It's bad English style. But when the Holy Spirit does it in the Scripture, we need to pay attention to it, and it should be translated that way so people can understand uh, these comparisons. Now, I thought that just for... Uh, information purposes i would put this up in terms of other translations matthew 25:41 at the top is the new king james which i just read in the new american standard version of 1995 verse 41 it translates uh, depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels so there's a better translation there in the new american standard and then just for fun i put up the version i love to hate the message which is really a paraphrase it's not a translation but i wanted to show you how poorly these things are done and yet because they're they're so popular people don't learn much truth from them and they actually obscure truth there it says, then he will turn to the goats, the ones on his left, and say, get out, worthless goats. You're good for nothing but the fires of hell. No mention of the devil and his angels, which is a critical part of understanding the verse. And also, as we'll see, the term, the English term hell is a very ambiguous and Uh, confusing term and one we should probably avoid not because it is some sort of profanity but because it is used to translate a lot of different words in the from the greek and hebrew and it's just confusing because it's not technically technically accurate so as we look at this we want to summarize what the issues are in understanding the passage Second, we need to answer the questions, when, where, and for whom was the lake, uh, when, why, and for whom was the lake of fire created? Third, we need to address the issue of punishment for the unsaved through the Old Testament and New Testament. We'll start in the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament teach, and then what does the New Testament teach to see how these fit together? And then fourth, really we will do this as part of answering the third question. Defining the key terms such as everlasting, is that everlasting meaning forever and ever and ever without end? Or is it just a term for a long time? What does Sheol describe? What does Hades describe? What does Torments describe? What does Gehenna describe? And what does the Lake of Fire describe? These are all distinct terms terms and not necessarily synonymous, although many people take them as synonyms. And then last, we'll address the question, why this, Why is this a problem for the love of God and the grace and the goodness of God? So first of all, what are the issues here? Well, the issue is basically how do we come to understand the relationship between the grace of God, His love and His goodness and His kindness, and His righteousness and justice. How, it's usually phrased this way How can a good, gracious, and loving God consign His creatures to unending fiery punishment? And to understand that, we have to go back to the essence of God and our understanding that God is sovereign and He is righteous. Righteous means that he is the ultimate standard of what is right what is correct, what is good in the universe. It's not my idea of what's right or what's good. It's not your idea of what's right or what's good. It is God's idea of what's right and what's good. He is just. That is the application of his righteous standard to his creatures. There's no one else in the universe other than his creatures. And so God must apply his righteous absolute standard to his creatures now that is not in contrast to his love for god's love is is perfectly compatible with his righteousness and justice this is difficult for a lot of people. They, they segment these and for sort of teaching and understanding purposes, we break down his attributes into these ten categories. But the reality is, just as you may be someone who is honest and someone who's hard working, someone who may be as a parent a harsh disciplinarianism, disciplinarian or a light disciplinarian, all of those make who you are and they work and integrate together you don't separate them out so all of these attributes of god work together and are integrally related so he has a righteous love he has a just love he has a loving righteousness and he's eternal but then we, when we look at his O characteristics, he's omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, we realize that his love functions on the basis of all knowledge. He knows everything, and his righteousness is related to his omniscience. And he is able to execute his justice because he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's able to do everything he intends to do. He's absolute truth, and he's immutable. He doesn't change. So all of these interrelate, so we have to come to understand that, and that's where people have problems is usually when they say, how can a loving, gracious God do this? They have imported certain preconceived notions of their own about what love is and what grace is rather than letting God speak to us and define those characteristics within the framework of His revelation. Another question that comes up is the question about, what about those who never heard? That doesn't seem fair to some people, that there are many people on the planet who may have never heard the name Jesus Christ, never heard of the Bible, never heard the gospel at all. How can God hold them accountable? And I don't want to get off onto that too much, but we've studied this a lot in our studies on Romans one eighteen to 23 that in nonverbal revelation, God has given a witness to every one of his existence in what he has created. Every atom, every molecule, every part of his creation gives a nonverbal testimony of his invisible attributes, his power, and his majesty. And Paul says there in Romans, that so that they are without excuse. When man faces the nonverbal testimony of God, he becomes aware that God exists. We call that God consciousness. And at the time of God consciousness, could be as early as two or three years of age, maybe much later depending on the culture and the context, then he has to decide whether he wants to know this God or not. That is called positive volition if he wants to know God. And if he does want to know God, if he chooses to know more about God, then God in his righteousness and justice must make that knowledge available to them and will in some way, and they will come to know the truth. And there's remarkable stories through the history of missions, of missionaries who have shown up somewhere, and someone there said, after hearing the gospel, I said, I knew there was something like this. I've been praying that God would send me someone who would tell me about this and tell us. We have these ancient stories in our among our people of something like this. And so these things have shown up in cultures all over the world down through the centuries. So that is evidence that God fulfills his obligation to give people the truth, to give them the gospel. So no one is sent to the lake of fire without excuse. So those are the basic questions that people uh, people ask and that people are concerned about. Now, when we look at the question, what are the issues, we have to remember that as we investigate anything in life, we as Christians must start with the Bible. What does the Bible say? Not what does our experience say, not what have other people's experience say. We always start with the Bible, and we have to uh, develop our understanding about God, which is called theology, from the scripture, from what is called exegesis. Exegesis is doing the work of observing. what what the scripture says doing the necessary word studies and grammatical analysis in the original languages to make sure that we properly understand what God has said often there are mistranslations ambiguous translations that have to be corrected so we have to remember that we must begin with the Bible with those specific statements and words and that exegesis precedes theology we don't start with an abstract concept of what god's love or grace should mean notice i use the word should mean and then interpret the bible in terms of our previous or prior understanding or our bias towards a certain understanding of love or grace another question that comes up in relation to this is defining terms such as eternal what does eternal mean Uh, what is the meaning of fire when it describes it is this a physical fire or is this something that is analogous to physical fire and then we have to of course define the other terms such as Gehenna, Sheol, Hades, Torments, Lake of Fire so we ask also questions like is the idea of a lake of fire a metaphor or is it literal and if it is literal are there any metaphors within it or analogies within it Another view that people have put forth, some Christians have put forth over the years in the, primarily in the Roman Catholic Church is the idea of purgatory, which comes from the root word meaning to purge. Okay, to purge means to remove something. And in the early church, as the church shifted away from a true grace understanding of the scripture, where you were saved by faith, al- by grace through faith alone, Trusting in Christ for Savior because he did all the work. He paid the penalty. The last thing Jesus said on the cross in Greek was tetelestai. It meant paid in full. It has already been completed it is in the uh, verbal form it's a perfect tense indicated completed action before he died physically he had done everything it was a term that archaeologists discovered was written on bills that had been paid in the greek culture paid in full that meant we cannot do anything to add to it he paid for all the sins well, the idea that developed late in the early church, around the 3rd, 4th century, is that if if we commit sins that we haven't confessed, then we still have to pay for them. They forgot that Jesus paid it all. And so if people died with unconfessed sin, or if they died before they were baptized, then they would have to do something to pay for those unconfessed sins, through some sort of torments or punishment before they could uh, get released from purgatory and then go to heaven, and that would involve virtually every Christian. They'd all have to spend some time in purgatory, and that became uh, greatly abused by the late Middle Ages, so that in order to raise money, primarily to build... um, built saint peter's cathedral in the vatican the uh, popes would send out people who would raise money by selling indulgences and one of these men in germany was called Johann tetzel and he would sing a little uh little chorus that for ever whenever the penny in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory sings And so that was the idea. You could purchase people's salvation through your financial gifts to the Roman Catholic Church. That is not what the Bible teaches. That was something that was developed much later and contradicts the whole biblical teaching on grace and the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. We have to understand also the question of the purpose of the lake of fire. Now one thing, two verses we need to keep in mind whenever we think about this are found close together in Hebrews. One in Hebrews nine twenty seven. It is appointed for men to die once. You don't get recycled, you don't get uh go through reincarnation, you don't get a second chance, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this the judgment. There's a finality that happens at physical death it's over game over we accomplish what we accomplish when we're alive there's no do overs there's no second chance this is serious it's significant so the writer of hebrews says in verse chapter 10 verse 31 it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god this is sobering truth for every believer so those are the issues now second when why and for whom was the lake of fire created the lake of fire was not created for human beings The lake of fire, according to this passage, was created for the devil and his angels. So let's look at what the verse says. Jesus addresses those on his left hand, the goats, the unbelievers who survived the tribulation. He says, depart from me, leave me, my meaning to go away. And he says, you then are cursed. The word curse there goes back to Genesis chapter 3. They are spiritually dead. They are still under the curse of Adam. They have not been regenerate. They have not believed in Jesus. They do not have new life. They are not justified by faith as Abraham in the Old Testament was justified by believing God. He believed God in Genesis fifteen six, and it was counted or imputed to him as righteousness. And then Jesus says, "...depart into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels." And this Greek word is, in the perfect tense, indicates its completed action. It's not something that's going to be prepared in the future. It's not something that was created at that time. It is something that at some indefine, indeterminate time in the past had already been created." It wasn't created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his angels. Now, we need to review just a little bit about why the devil and the angels were sentenced to the lake of fire. This indicates, because of the seriousness of this punishment, that they had committed some incredibly significant crime against God. That crime, for that crime, they had been judged and a penalty had been announced. That penalty was that they would spend eternity in this lake of fire, this e- eternal fire, and that they were not at that time in the lake of fire, and that implies that for some reason the execution of that penalty had been postponed. Now, there's a certain amount of speculation about this because the Bible doesn't specifically say what the reason was for that, but there are hints throughout Scripture, suggestions from Job and other places, that there was a, a an appeal. Um, Barnhouse, who was a great uh, Presbyterian preacher and dispensationalist, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, in in, uh, Philadelphia, Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a classic book on spiritual warfare until, of course, it was replaced by another one by a similar name. But he wrote a book called The Invisible War, which is a classic, great book. And he is the first, well, he's probably not the first because very few people are the first unless you're in the early church. But he articulated this concept that there was some sort of trial in heaven and that Satan appealed that verdict, and that human history is a a demonstration of God's love, justice, and righteousness. I think part of it is that, that Satan said, How in the world can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire for all eternity? It doesn't seem that the penalty fits the crime. And so what God is demonstrating in history is that the penalty does fit the crime because if you look at human history now and you think about all the wars, all the famines, all the diseases, all of the horrible, horrible suffering, all of the poverty, all that has gone on that is so terrible in human history, it's all the result, not of some terrible sin. It's not the result of somebody who was a racist or somebody who owned slaves or somebody who was a drug addict or somebody who was a gang member. Those are all the bad sins of our generation. It's not the result of somebody who committed mass murder or genocide. It's the result of somebody who ate a piece of fruit an innocuous act, an act that in and of itself doesn't seem bad. But because it was in disobedience to God, it had eternal consequences. That's the significance of sin. Sin isn't something that's just some little peccadillo, some little uh, negative act It is something that changed the very structure of God's creation so that all of his creation came under judgment and under a curse. And the reason people have problems understanding the the, uh, the, the seriousness of this punishment and accepting the seriousness of this punishment is because they don't understand the seriousness of sin. They don't understand the evil of sin, the corruption of sin. They have a low view of sin, and often they don't have a very high view of God in relation to that. So that's part of the background here. Now, the devil became the devil through his sin, which is described in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, and also Ezekiel 28, 12 to 16, and he's given this title of the devil, which is the Greek word diabolos, which simply means an enemy, an adversary. It is the counterpart or translation of the Hebrew word satan, which also means adversary, his original name, identified as such, is in the Hebrew, Hillel bin Shahar, which has to do with the bright and shining star, the sun of the morning. It is not Lucifer. Lucifer is from a Latin word meaning light bearer, and so that was a mistranslation of that word, Hillel, it's referring to a bright star, so this was... Uh, again one of the many times in scripture where we see some sort of a relationship between stars and the angels he's also called a dragon in revelation 12:9 the great dragon was cast out this happens halfway through the tribulation he was called the, the he's the serpent of old that's genesis 3 called the devil and satan that's also restated in revelation 22 when he is cast into um the abyss for a thousand years is identified as the devil and satan so the if we think about this this eternal fire is not a physical fire remember this was created before the physical material earth as we know it came to be with the fire as we know it this was created for the angels who are immaterial creatures, they're not physical, so this fire is of an, is analogous to what we think of fire. It is a fire that would produce pain, but a fire that would not consume the immaterial bodies of the angels, okay so it is something that goes on forever and ever. so the implication of these statements is that at some time in eternity past, Satan and his fallen angels, the demons, rebelled against God, God judged them, and they were sentenced to the lake of fire, and that punishment was postponed, and during the interim period, God is demonstrating that he truly is righteous, just, and love. In light of the unique penalty that was given to these immaterial creatures, we can conclude that if human beings are sent there, in the process they must be given a similar kind of immaterial body that will not be consumed and yet will still experience all of the horrors, all of the pain, all of the torment, and it is unending. The idea that it is unending is not just a New Testament teaching; it is also found in the Old Testament, for example, in Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, where Isaiah says, "And they shall go forth," talking about those who, the those who have survived into the millennial kingdom. They will be able to witness those who have been. Uh, Sent to this lake of fire. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall see an abhorrence to all flesh. Now what does that mean that their worm does not die? The Hebrew word there for worm, which I've put at the bottom, is uh, tola'ah, which is the root T-O-L-A, with a final uh, guttural there, tola, and it refers to a worm, it refers to if you crush the worms that this kind of worm would produce a, uh, a purple dye, so it's also translated scarlet or crimson, but all three forms of the word mean worm, maggot, or larva, so what this is saying, isn't this a lovely image, when it says there it says the maggot won't die now a maggot will die and the maggots go away after they've consumed the flesh in the in the uh, breakdown of, of the body after death but if the body is never consumed then the maggot never dies and it's a very graphic way of expressing the eternality of the punishment The the worm the maggot does not die and the fire is not quenched. So we've looked at the issues, point one. We've answered the question when, why, and for whom the lake of fire was created. And third and 4th we'll weave together talking about how the punishment of the unsaved is is taught in the Old Testament and then the New. And in doing so, we'll look at these key terms, everlasting, Sheol, Hades, torments, Gehenna, and the lake of fire. The Old Testament, we have a verse. I've quoted it here in uh, both the New King James Version and the NASB 95. Deuteronomy 32.22 which reads, For a fire is kindled, God is speaking here, for a fire is kindled in my anger, and shall burn to the lowest hell, that's the new King James, also King James, it shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I want you to note that fire is an integral part of this concept related to Sheol. Fire in burning, mentioned several times, kindled in verse in in the same verse in the new American standard, you have a more accurate translation you have the word sheol put there instead of lowest hell this is not talking about the lake of fire this is talking about a different place identified as Shaol. now part of the problem that we have in english translations and in Eng- the english language is this word hell hell is really an ambiguous term it is technically not a biblical word at all it has its origins from uh, norse or germanic words that indicated the place the underworld the place where the dead went it is used 54 times in the king james version and 32 times in the New King James Version. It's been a very popular term to use down through history. In fact, I looked up the etymology today and learned that the phrase going to hell in a handbasket is actually it's a very biblical concept. Going to hell in a handbasket actually followed a phrase. It first was uh, documented about mid-1850s, followed a phrase that never really gained popularity in the 1830s called going to heaven in a handbasket. Now, what does it mean to go somewhere in a handbasket? It means that you don't have to put forth any effort. Someone is carrying you there. It is to emphasize the ease at which you will get there. Now, going to heaven in a handbasket is a gracious idea. We do nothing to get there. God carries us there on the basis of his love, our trust in Christ as Savior. Now, most people are going to go to hell in a handbasket. They don't have to put forth any effort either because they are born spiritually dead and they're already headed there. So I just thought that was a little extra insight. Uh, Chambers' Dictionary of Etymology endorses this idea. It was a pagan concept that was transferred and absorbed into Christianity. And it gets confusing because um, King King James Version used it 54 times. New King James got rid of 22 of those and only used it 32 times. But it's used uh, consistently in the Old Testament to translate Sheol. Okay, so that's something that you could, if you read it in the Old Testament, you know it's Sheol. In the New Testament, it translates both the Greek word Hades as well as Gehenna in the King James Version. In the New King James Version, it only translates Gehenna, and also in both versions, it translates Tartarus in Second 2 Peter 2.4. Now, Tartarus is not the same as Gehenna, and neither are the same as Hades. So this gets really confusing when that word hell is used to translate all those three different ideas, and so people naturally get confused theology. When you look at the Old Testament, the word uh, the word sheol has three basic meanings. One is the grave. The other is is a figure related to the grave. What what are you if you're in the grave? You're dead so uh shaol also can be a figure for for being dead and it also refers to the abode of the righteous and the future uh, the abode of the righteous and the future abode of the wicked in genesis 4238 uh, Jacob says, "My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead, and he is left alone if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring my down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave that show just that 's what it refers to in many passages it 's just talking about the grave in other passages it is talking about uh, something more than the grave." In a, a few places, it identifies. Here's another place it, it, where it identifies death. Isaiah 38:18 for Sheol cannot thank you, uh, death cannot praise you. See the parallelism there between Sheol and death. It's just a, uh, another way of speaking of death. Talks about the abode for the Old Testament believer after death in Genesis 37:35. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father uh, wept for him. So this is talking about uh, Jacob. He says, I will go down to Sheol. It's a place for the for the destiny of the believer. That's a uh, clear reference. Some other places where it's the future abode of the believer that is the one who is justified or the righteous would be Psalm 88.3 and Psalm 89.48 Isaiah 38.10 says in the middle of my life I am to enter the gates of Sheol I am to be deprived of the rest of my years that's a believer talking there but also it is identified as the future abode for the Old Testament unbeliever in Psalm 99, verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God, that is, all the Gentiles, would be a better translation. Psalm 31:17, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you, let the wicked be put to shame, let them be silent in Sheol. So you have this idea, it's not well developed, but that both the righteous and the wicked go to Sheol. So there seem to be two different compartments in Sheol. And then you also have the idea expressed in the Old Testament that that penalty is forever. And we have to ask the question, how long is forever in the Old Testament? In some passages, it refers to simply a very, very long time. It can simply refer to something that's just a long time ago, maybe within somebody's lifetime or their grandfather's lifetime. It's translated that way in Isaiah 58, 12. Those from among you shall build the old. This is the Hebrew word olam. Shall build the olam, waste places. That is, the waste places that have been from the ages, from a long time. But there are clearly many, many other passages where it refers to eternity. For example, in Micah five two, prediction of the Messiah coming, that He is the one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. There it indicates eternity. Also in passages like Daniel twelve two, it talks about judgment that will come and that some will be raised to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's the same word in both places. It's the word olam, and it clearly indicates uh, eternity. Whatever the length of everlasting life is, it must be the same as the length of everlasting contempt. Uh, This is the parallel That we find there. Now, there's another word that we have in the Bible, the word "all" that doesn't always mean everyone, uh, without exception. You have places in the New Testament where it says, "All who lived in Judea went out to hear John the Baptist." Does that mean every single person who lived in Judea went to hear John the Baptist? Or just that most of them did, or a lot of them did? Often the word all doesn't mean all, it just means a big number. Same is true for olam in the Old Testament. Forever, many times, just means till the end of the age. Many, many other times it refers to eternity but that's because the Hebrew is not always as technical as the Greek. The Greek is a little different. The other word that's used in the Old Testament is the introduction of the concept of the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehinom, which becomes in Greek Gehenna. We've studied this in the past. This was, I just want to briefly hit this. This was where Judah sinned by committing infant sacrifice human sacrifice. They burned their sons and daughters in the fires of Moloch. They built these metal or stone idols that had a furnace under the arms, and they would literally lay their infants in the fires in the arms of Moloch and burn them alive. This was an abomination to God, and they were judged for it. And in 586 BC, when the Babylonians invaded, they slaughtered so many Jews That They buried them in the valley of Gehenna so that this became a picture, a symbol in the Old Testament for divine judgment in time, not eternal judgment. Many, many people, most of the people you read will say the fires of Gehenna refers to the eternal fires of the lake of fire. But if you study it historically, the judgment of Gehenna was punishing Israel in time not an eternal punishment and it makes much more sense in the new testament if when we read gehenna we interpret we interpret those passages to refer to god's divine discipline on people in time not in eternity So that was our conclusion. You can look at various lessons where I taught this earlier in Matthew. Uh, Matthew lesson 29 and 147 go into this in much more detail. The conclusion was that the Valley of Hinnom was not used in the Old Testament as a reference to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, but as a place of divine discipline on the nation of Israel for their spiritual failure. Gehenna thus became a symbol for spiritual failure, condemnation and shame and divine discipline in time, not in eternity. You get into Matthew where Matthew says, if you call your brother a fool, you're going to be guilty of hell. Makes people think, well, if I hate my brother, I can lose my salvation, which is how Arminians take that. But if they're guilty, if it An idiom meaning you're guilty of divine discipline in time makes a lot more sense. Same with all the other uses. Then we come to Luke 16, the passage that uh, John read before class this morning. There we learn in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was the Greek form of his Hebrew name uh, Eleazar or Eleazar. Uh, Lazarus is the Greek form of that word. This is Lazarus, who's a homeless man begging outside this rich man's house. Lazarus dies, and he goes to a place identified in the story as Abraham's bosom. It's where Old Testament believers went when they died. It was a compartment in Sheol, or Hades. And then the rich man died, and he goes to torments. This is the place of unbelievers from all dispensations. It is a place of fiery torment. Remember what the rich man said? Uh, I am burning up from the fire. Please touch your finger in the water uh, and touch it to my tongue because I'm in such great pain. So it also has that uh, sense of constant burning, but his body is not consumed. After Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, the, the paradise was taken with him after the resurrection to heaven, as stated in Second Corinthians twelve one through 4 where paradise is identified as being in heaven and no longer in Sheol. There's another place mentioned in Second Peter 2, 4, Tartarus, that's in a compartment of Hades. That is where specific groups of fallen angels have been um, imprisoned until their judgment this is what we see in that verse if god did not spare the angels who sinned that refers to the genesis six sons of god but cast them down to hell literally the the greek word there is tartarao which indicates cast to tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment so they're in a holding cell that's what we have here with the with torments. It's a holding cell. It's not the lake of fire. It's a holding cell. So the same thing goes on with these these angels. They're mentioned again in Jude six. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now one person said, How can it be dark if there's fire there? that's a smart theologian well it's a different that's what I argued earlier it's a different kind of fire it is not the kind of fire that we experience in this life and we're not going to have bodies like we have in this life it is a fire that does not there's fire that you don't see if you have a gas stove like I do and you turn it on it's a blue flame if you get it really hot it will go invisible, and you won't see the fire. So it is. Uh, fire does not necessarily produce light. It does if it burns yellow or orange. That's because it's got a lot more, um, or is it a lot less oxygen? I don't remember. Anyway, back to verse forty-one. Jesus says, "Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels." This is the word Ionias. It is not the word "ion." A I Omega N Ion is a word that means eternal, but it also can mean age, and it can indicate a long time, but not eternal. But this word "ionios" always, always, without end, means infinite, indefinite, no ending, eternal, forever. And ever. And so that is applied to the fire. It is everlasting. In Matthew 25 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's the same word. You can't split the meaning. Ionios always means eternal forever and ever. It's the same word that's used again and again to describe our salvation. Whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have. Ionios, life, everlasting life. John 3.15. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Again and again and again. That which is promised the believer is everlasting life. The same word is used to describe the punishment of the unbeliever as everlasting if we look forward to life unending then the punishment must also be life unending so the last question is why is this a problem for the love of god and the grace and the goodness of god michael green who is a british theologian has written in his book on evangelism What sort of God would he be who could rejoice eternally in heaven with the saved while downstairs the cries of the lost make an agonizing cacophony? What he's doing is he's reading his own ideas of love and joy and righteousness and justice into his understanding of God. He's not starting with the scripture and working to his theology. He's starting with his theology and reading it back into scripture. What we see is that all of God's characteristics work together. For his love to be real love, it has to be consistent with righteousness and justice. For his righteousness to be true, it has to be consistent with his love. This is serious. We need to take it seriously. We live in an age when very few people preach the eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. But it is dire, it is real, and it affects many people whom we love. John Walford, former president of Dallas Seminary, now with the Lord, wrote Eternal punishment is an unrelenting doctrine that faces every human being as the alternative to grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. As such, it is a spur, that means it's a motivation to preaching the gospel, to witnessing for Christ, to praying for the unsaved, and to showing compassion on those who need to be snatched as brands for the burning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be reminded of the seriousness of our mission to take the truth to those who do not know it, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to offer people the only hope for life eternal that they have, and that is Jesus Christ. That the alternative is unthinkable. It is horrible, but it reflects the horribleness of sin. Father, we know that it is just because it is compatible with your righteousness. And we know that it is loving because it is compatible with your integrity and your love. But it is hard for us to understand and hard for our emotions to accept in relation to those whom we love. But, Father, we pray that this might challenge us to a greater understanding of our need to go to the lost, to explain the gospel, and to not be silent witnesses but vocal Testimonies to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And we pray that anyone listening today who has never trusted Christ, may they realize that there are consequences. It's not a game. It's not something that is frivolous and silly, thinking that there'll just be an eternal party with a lot of people who were just as reprobate as they. It is an eternity, probably in isolation in darkness experiencing fiery pain that will never end because we have treated so lightly your grace and your love. And by rejecting Christ, we have committed the ultimate blasphemy. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the truths of this message. In Christ's name, amen.